Open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 3. And as I said last week, those three words are the most important words that a preacher could ever say. Open your Bible. Because when you open your Bible in church or when you open your Bible at home, you are opening the book of God, and God will speak to you through His Word. This is the only book you have that is alive. It is living. It has life to it. And so when you open your Bible and begin to read, God will speak to you, and God will give you the message that He has for you. Now, anytime you open your Bible at home, private devotions, or in a setting like this where somebody is teaching and preaching from the Bible, There are three questions that we should always ask when we open our Bible. Question number one, you might want to jot this down, is simply this. What does it say? That's always the first question. What does it say? In other words, when you're reading it, you're getting information. What does the Bible say? Question number two, what does it mean? This is interpretation. Sometimes we'll read a passage, and we're about to read one today, and we say, okay, I see what it says. I understand that. But what does this mean, interpreting the Scriptures? And we interpret the Scriptures. There are a lot of ways. The best way to interpret the Scripture is to compare what you're reading in one passage to another passage. And the Bible never contradicts itself. And so sometimes if a passage here is unclear, if you read somewhere else, it'll shed light on that passage. So when we say, what does it mean, that's interpretation. Question number three, what does it mean to me? And this is the point of application. And we should always ask that because if all we're doing is getting information and if all we're doing is uh, interpreting Scriptures but we're not applying those Scriptures to our lives, then something is missing. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? Now, this morning we're going to read a message that Jesus had to a particular church 2,000 years ago, it was a church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The name of the town was Sardis, S-A-R-D-I-S. And Jesus is looking down from heaven at this church, and he's noticing good things and bad things. And he had a specific message for this church, just like he had for all the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, what was Jesus saying? What was the message to the church in Sardis. Well, we're going to read it, but let me go ahead and give it to you before we even read it. Here's what Jesus was saying to this church. He was saying, even though your church has a good reputation within the community and beyond the community, the fact is your church is dead. That's what Jesus told the pastor of that church. And he said to the pastor of that church, what I want you to do is share, convey my message to the people. You have a reputation within the community. Man, within the community, they say, man, the First Baptist Church of Sardis or whatever it might have been, the non-denominational church of Sardis, the church, man, they've got great worship down there. They've got great preaching down there, got great programs down there organized. You wouldn't believe how organized it is. And so they had a great reputation within the community. Great reputation beyond the community, but Jesus said to that church, the church is dead, D-E-A-D. What in the world is this all about? Well, let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel, remember that word angel literally means messenger. 
this message came to the pastor of these churches, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the divine wisdom of God. And the seven stars, the pastors, the leaders of those churches, Jesus has them in his hands. I know your works, that you have a name or you have a reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. That's why I said a moment ago, Jesus said to this church, even though you have a reputation within the community of being live and vivacious and involved in a lot of things, the fact is you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. God's not going to blot anybody's name out from the Lamb's book of life. And that's what he's emphasizing here. He's not implying that there are other people whose names will be blotted out. He's just saying, once your name's in that book, it will not be blotted out. For I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so again, the message was Jesus saying to this church, as I look at you, great preaching, great teaching, great organizational structure, great worship, great reputation in the community and beyond, but this church is dead. That's what Jesus said. Now, the question is, what in the world did he mean by that? What did he mean when he called a church dead? Well, here's what he meant. He meant that the majority of the members of the church had never been saved. They had never been born again. Now, he referenced some who had, but the majority of them had never been saved. They had never received Jesus Christ in a personal way. And you read that and you think about that, and at least as I've prepared this message, I ask this, this question, how in the world could that be? How is it possible that a church could come together for worship and the overwhelming majority of the members are unsaved? How is that possible? And how is it possible today that in many churches you have peop many people who have never been saved? Billy Graham in his ministry used to say that in his estimation, he couldn't prove it, this was his theory, 50% of church members had never been saved. They're not going to heaven when they die, even though they were part of the church. How is this possible? Well, I think the first way this is possible is, well, the, the short answer to that question is they had misplaced faith. They had placed their faith in the fact that they were connected to a church, they belonged to a church, their names were on a church roll, maybe they had been baptized, and so they thought, well, hey, I go to church, I, I believe in God, and, and so surely that's all that God would expect. And so for many of them, they were trusting the church instead of trusting the Lord. Others of them probably, no doubt, they just assumed since they believed in God, they believed in Jesus, we would say they were orthodox or mainstream in their theology that they, they considered themselves to be Christians. Did you know all around the world today in America, certainly in, in England and Scotland and other countries, there are churches who will have a time in their service where the people will all stand up and they will read together, they will quote the Apostles' Creed. 
Many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. It was not written by the apostles. It came along in the 4th century A.D., and it was based on the teaching of the apostles. And we're going to look at it today on the screen. In our church, we don't, we're not quite as liturgical, so we wouldn't have the, the, the creeds, even though we believe this. I believe the Apostles' Creed. But look at, look at the, what the Apostles' Creed said. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, that word Catholic literally means universal. Many of you are from Catholic churches. You grew up going to Catholic churches, and you may never have even known why the church is called Catholic. Well, that's the reason why. The word Catholic means universal. And so in the Apostles' Creed, when they're saying, I believe in the Catholic church, they're not referring to a denomination. What they're saying is, I believe that in the world today, there is a universal body of believers, the church of Jesus Christ, who believes all these things about Jesus. And so in that sense, I say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, that is orthodox mainstream theology. I bet everybody here today, as, you, as I was reading that, you were looking at that, you say, well, I believe that. God the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the church, he's coming again. I believe all those things. Did you know you could believe all those things and still not be saved? In fact, the de- did you know the devil believes the Apostles' Creed? Now, he's too proud to admit it, but in his heart, he knows that's true. The Bible says the devil believes in God. He believes all those things about God, and yet we know that the devil is not saved. And so, when Billy Graham said, I estimate 50% of church members are unsaved, what's he basing that on? He's basing that on years of ministry experience, seeing people who've grown up in the church, been raised in the church, believe everything there is to believe about God, and yet he gives the invitation at his crusades, his revival meetings, and all these church members are coming down to be saved. And they're saying, in essence, even though I've always believed all those things, I've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the first service today, there were about 10 people who got saved. Did they believe all those things when they woke up this morning? Yes. But what were they saying when they got saved? They were saying, I need to know Jesus in a personal way. He needs to be real to me. It's not just believing the facts in our head. It is having a relationship with Jesus Christ in our heart. And so here's the question. What does the Bible say? Well, we just saw what it says. The church is dead. What does it mean? It means the members were unsaved. What does it mean to me? Well, that's a good question. Here's what it means to us personally. It means that we had better make sure that we are truly saved, that we have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not depending on the church. We're not counting on our theology. We're not resting our hopes for heaven on our parents' faith. No, that we know Jesus Christ in a personal way. Let me give you a couple of Scripture verses. Sometime when I say we need to make sure that we're saved, People wonder about that. What do you mean make sure? Did you know that whole concept is biblical? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the Scripture says that we are to make our calling and election sure. 
that we're to make sure that we're saved. Just like every night before I go to bed, I walk to my kitchen window and look out and make sure that I close the garage door. I make sure before I go to bed. Doors are locked and the garage door is down. Well, the Bible says you should make sure that you're saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, the Scripture says, Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith that we need to do an examination to make sure that we are saved. And we need to take a spiritual inventory and look and say, is my faith genuine? Have I truly been saved? And so there is a sense that questioning our salvation is a good and biblical thing. Now, that doesn't mean we should live our whole lives with a big question mark over our head, not knowing whether or not we're saved. But it does mean there, need, there should be certain times in our lives where we just call a timeout on life and say, you know what? I want to make sure that Jesus Christ is living in my heart. Now, this past week, we had vacation Bible school here at the church. We used to call it that, and now we call it kids camp. There were hundreds of kids who came. It was a great camp. And I'll give you a little, up, a little uh, update on that. Praise the Lord that on one of, Wednesday, I think, was their day they explained to all those kids how to be saved. Think about this. On Wednesday, 67 boys and girls prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into their heart. 67. Beautiful thing. And we're going to be following up on each of those decisions as best we can with those kids and with their parents. Why? To make sure that those kids know what they're doing. There would be nothing worse than for one of those kids last week to have been in that setting, hearing the gospel explained, watching you know, other of their friends get saved, and one of those kids saying, well, if he's going down, I'm going down, and if she's going down, that's my brother, I'm going with him, or that's my sister, I'm going with her, and they never really were saved. They made a decision, and so they grow up in the church, they get baptized, and they think for the rest of their lives, well, since I made a decision at Vacation Bible School when I was 10, that means I'm saved. I don't have to question anything. I don't have to examine anything wrong. We should all question and make sure that we are saved. So I want to give a three-question test today, and we'll take about five minutes for all of us here to question our salvation and to ask ourselves, am I truly saved? Question number one, do you have a stronger desire to obey God than you do to please yourself? Now, you're in the book of Revelation. Turn back just a few pages to the book of 1 John. The same person who wrote Revelation wrote John, wrote 1 John, the apostle John. And the book of 1 John is written for this reason, so that we can know whether or not we're truly saved. That's why he wrote this book. And in chapter 2, in verse number 3, notice what he says. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. That word keep was used as a nautical word back in the first century. Those sailors would be sailing their ships. They didn't have all the equipment we have today, and so they would, they would sail their ships by the stars. They would line their ships up by the stars, and sometime it would be cloudy. Sometime they would get off course, but as soon as they could see those stars again, they would realign their ship. The desire of their heart was to be lined up with the stars. Now, for us as Christians today, the stars represent the commandments of God. And so here's what the Bible is saying. The Scripture is saying, here's one way you can know that you're saved. Is your life lined up by the Word of God? Now, sometimes we veer to the right or we veer to the left. Sometimes we get off course. But when we become aware of that, 
We ask for forgiveness, and we get back on course. One of the ways you can know you're saved is that you have a desire to live for God. You, say if some, you see, if somebody is 35 or 40 years old or maybe 25 years old, and they're out there just living a, an ungodly life, they're involved in immorality, they're committing sins they ought not to commit, they don't ever go to church, they don't ever read the Bible, they don't ever pray, they don't ever think about God, and somebody says to them, are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved because when I was 10 years old at vacation Bible school, I went down to the front. Let me tell you something. When you went down to the front at 10 years old at vacation Bible school, if that was a genuine decision, you won't be able to go out there and just live a godless life and it not bother you at all. One of the ways I know I'm saved is not that I never sin because I still sin more than I wish I did. One of the ways I know I'm saved is every time I sin, I feel badly about it. And anybody who can sin with no guilt, no conviction, no regret, no compunction, no remorse, I can assure you today that person does not have the Spirit of God living on the inside of them because when we sin as Christians, when I sin, the Spirit says to me, John, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have thought that. That was wrong, and that is God convicting me and also assuring me that I belong to Him. So that's the first question. Do you have a desire, a stronger desire to obey God than you do to please yourself. Question number two, do you have love in your heart for other people? That's one of the most basic ways that we can know that we're saved. And if you got saved at Bible school and you came down and made your decision, one of the ways you can know that it was real and genuine is that in your heart you have love for other people. Now turn to chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and look in verse number 14. This is a tremendous verse and a very clear verse. John said, we know that we have passed from death to life. You see, before a person is saved, they're spiritually dead. After they're saved, they're spiritually alive. And John said, here's how you can know you've crossed that line. Because we love the brethren. We have love in our hearts for others. Now watch the next sentence. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What is John saying? Well, it's pretty obvious what he's saying. He's saying one of the ways you can know you're saved is that you have love in your heart. And if you don't have love in your heart, that's an indication that you're not saved. Now, it's kind of like the first one with obeying the commandments. We don't always love perfectly. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt. Sometimes we have a grudge. Sometimes we're bitter. But when we get like that, God convicts us. And we say, God, my attitude's not right. Forgive me. Fill my heart with your love. But if you just live hating people, mad at people, angry with people, that's an indication that you're not saved. And so be thankful that God has made it just that clear because today you can take care of that. And then the third test, the third question on our assurance test is simply this. Are you trusting Jesus Christ to save you? Are you trusting Jesus? Now, turn to chapter number 5. I'm going to show you three verses here. In chapter number 5, John now is, is talking still about knowing that we're saved. And here's what he says, verse 11. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. You see, the life is in Christ. It is in a personal relationship with Jesus, not just going to church, not just having good theology, having Christ personally. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. If you have Jesus in your life, you're saved. If you don't, you've never been saved. You say, well, John, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Do I have him or not? Look in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who literally, who trust in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How can we know that we're saved? Because we are trusting Jesus Christ to save us. Our faith is resting in Jesus. If I were to die today and stand before God, and God were to say to me, John, why should I let you into heaven? What do you think I would say to God? I would not say, well, God, I've been going to church all my life. God, I went to church probably more than anybody went to church because I grew up in Patrick. I mean, I've just gone to church. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say, well, God, because I went to college and I studied Bible. I wouldn't say, God, I became a preacher. I wouldn't say any of that. I wouldn't say, God, I knew a lot about the Bible, and I think I had good theology. No, if I died today and stood before God, and he said to me, why shall I let you into heaven? Here's what I would say. I would say, God, as you know, when I was on earth, I sinned many times. But I asked Jesus Christ to forgive those sins. I confessed those sins. I asked him to come into my life. I asked him to apply the blood that he shed on that cross to each and every one of my sins. And the only reason that I should go to heaven is because I am trusting the person of Jesus Christ and I am trusting the blood that he shed for me on that cross. And when I say that to God, he'll open wide the gates and let me in to the city. Why? Because my faith is in Jesus. The old hymn says it this way, my faith has found a resting place. You see, all of us are resting our faith on something in ourselves, our good life, our church attendance, you know, our theology, our parents' faith. Everybody's resting their faith on something. But unless your faith is in Jesus, you'll never have peace and you'll never have assurance. My hope is my faith rather has found a resting place, not in device nor creed, not in the apostles' creed. I trust the ever-living one, Jesus. His wounds for me doth plead. And I'm saying to you today, and I'm doing you a favor to say this, if you are trusting anything other than Jesus Christ and the blood he shed on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to get that settled today, and you need to make sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. You need to make sure that you're saved. That's why Peter says, make your calling sure. That's why Paul said, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. So how you on the test? Do you have a stronger desire to obey God than to please yourself? Do you have love in your heart for others? And are you trusting Jesus? And that third one is the clincher, because if you're trusting Jesus, one and two will happen automatically. So that's our question today. Are you trusting Jesus? So the first thing when we think about Jesus delivering a message to a dead church is, am I saved? Do I have spiritual life in me? And I would imagine that this service is like the first one. That there's some saying, John, I don't think I have that life. I think I'm spiritually dead. I don't have a desire to obey God. I don't love people. I'm not trusting Jesus. Well, hang on, because in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a chance to receive Christ in a personal way so that he'll move from your head 18 inches down to your heart. Now, you still listen? Say amen, all right? Now, the second question we should ask, not only am I saved, but here's the second question. If we think about what does this message Jesus had to the church of Sardis, this dead church, what does it mean to me? Here's the question for those of us who are saved. Would I say that at this time in my life, my, fire, my heart is on fire for God, that I'm passionate about God? 
But I'm excited about the things of God. I'm excited about reading my Bible. I'm excited about praying. I'm excited about coming to church. I'm excited about sharing my faith in Christ with others. Or would we say, you know what, John, I've had those seasons, but at this time in my life, the fire's gone out. I don't have any excitement about anything spiritually. I'm, I go through the motions, but my fire has gone out. Well, you know, a person can be spiritually alive, in other words, biblically saved, truly saved, and yet for all practical pur- purposes, they're dead. They're, they, they, they just kind of become, they've not lost their salvation, but they're just disconnected from God, and the fire has gone out, and it happens to all of us if we're not careful. And so I'm asking you today, at this time in your life, do you have a passion you know, this past week, my dad had mentioned in the service last Sunday that we need to pass those little booklets out to people. Well, I probably don't pass as much of those out as I should because, for one thing, I, I've written them, and I feel a little weird giving out. You know, it seemed arrogant to me to do that. But, but uh, this past week, I was having some things happening at my house, and I had different repair people coming to fix this, that, and the other. And the first two came last week, and and I didn't, I didn't invite them to church, and I didn't give them a booklet, or I didn't do anything. And, and, uh, and, and when they left, I thought about that. I, I thought, you know, I had an opportunity today to witness, to at least invite them to come to church, and I just failed to do it. And so as the week went on, I kept having more people. Well, by about the third or fourth person, I, I was more mindful of this. And so I, said, I started handing those little booklets out. I said, listen, uh, I don't know if you have a church where you go, but I go to First Baptist here in Pasadena. And I said... We've been giving out these booklets at our church. I said, it was written by one of our members, a really good-looking, smart guy. And, uh, and, and I said, we want you to just have, I want you, we're just giving these away. And so I got better. But I'm just saying, at the first of the week, people were coming to my house to fix things. The only thing I was thinking about was getting my things fixed. But as the week went on, I started thinking, you know what? Maybe God let some things break down so I could invite somebody to come to church. And that's the type of thing I'm th- When our heart is on fire... We do that more, and when the fire goes out, we don't. I was thinking about an illustration that I could use about, about a person who, you know, the question is, how do we get that fire back if we've lost that fire? Or if we've got that fire going, how do we keep that fire going? You know, the Scripture says, stir up the, the fire that is in you, fan the flame. How do we keep it going, or how do we get it back? I think there are two things we have to do. Number one, we have to pursue God daily. And number two, we have to fulfill our purpose in life. Now, don't you, you can't be spiritually vivacious if you don't do those two things. Pursue God daily and find and fulfill your purpose in life. Some people, are, they're, they're not excited about life because they they're bored because they're not fulfilling their purpose. They're just going through the motions of everyday life. And I was thinking, God, what is an example? Who is an example of somebody, not perfect, none of us is perfect, but somebody who pursues God daily, and somebody who is fulfilling their purpose in life. And I'll be honest with you, and I know he doesn't want me to use him as an example, but my dad came to mind, and I thought about my dad. And when I started saying this at the first service, I knew he wouldn't want me to use him as an example, but I said, you know what? I've got the microphone. I can say whatever I want to say right now, right? My dad pursues God daily as much as anybody I know. I, I call my dad. I talk to him multiple times a day. And sometimes I'll call him to ask a question about something, and, 
He'll say, hey, man, glad you called. You couldn't have called it at a better time. He said, I'm just reading this passage out of some book in the Bible. He said, I, I, I came across something today I've never noticed in all my life. And he gives me a 20-minute sermon on what it is he noticed in the Bible. And at the end of that, he says, now, what did you call about? I said, I don't have any remembrance of why I called you. He just, but he's fired up, and he's pursuing God. He's fulfilling his purpose in his life. This past Friday, and I know he doesn't want me to say this part, but I'm going to say it anyway. This past Friday, my dad celebrated his 80th birthday, and it's an exciting time for him, <laughs> exciting time for our family. My brother and his family have been in Colorado, and, and they flew in town for the, for the taco party we had on Friday night. We had a great time all getting together. And, and I, you know, my dad, in the weeks leading up to this birthday, I'll be honest with you, he said, you know, John, my birthdays normally don't bother me. He said, but 80, that's just a big number, man. He said, this is a big, he said, I just feel like I'm really starting to get, get old. I said, Dad, let me tell you, 80, it's just, it's a number, that's all it is, it's all in your head. He said, no, John, it's not all in my head, it's in my back, <laughs> it's in my knees, it's in my feet, sometimes it's in my equilibrium, my balance, I get off balance. He said, no, it ain't just in my head, John, it's everywhere, I know I'm 80 years old. I said to him a few weeks ago, I said, what do you want for your birthday? 80. This is momentous. I'll get you anything you want. Will you just tell me what you want and it's yours? He thought about it for a few minutes. He said, you know, he said, I, the, the Bible I'm using right now, I really love the Bible. He said, but the Bible I've been reading from and even preaching from, it's in paragraph form. And those of you who study Bible formats and layouts, you know there's the paragraph form where the verses are just you know, they may, verse 2 may be in the middle of a paragraph. And he said, I love the Bible, but when I'm up there preaching, he said, I need a Bible where it's in the verse-by-verse verse format. So if I tell everybody, look at verse 7, I can find verse 7. It's just the verses on top of each other. He said, you've asked me what I want for my birthday. I'm telling you, I want a new preaching Bible. And so I ordered him one, got him a very nice preaching Bible. He's been preaching from it. I gave it to him early. He's been using it for the last few weeks on Wednesday night and maybe his most recent Sunday sermon he used that. And when I was writing you know, on the page, the inscription page, to dad from John on the occasion of your 80th birthday, I said this on the, on the next little line below that. I said, you know, I said, dad, I'm thankful to have a father who on his 80th birthday, more than anything else, wanted a brand new preaching Bible. I'm thankful to have a pastor on his 80th birthday who wanted a brand new preaching Bible. Let me tell you something. There aren't many 80-year-old pastors out there. There aren't. For one thing, God's got to bless you with good health, and God's got to bless you with a long life. But I'll tell you one reason, God, and God's given my dad that, but one of the reasons at 80 years of age my dad is still going strong is because every day he is pursuing God personally and to the best of his ability at 80 years of age, he is fulfilling the calling that God placed on his life many years ago. He said, John, give me a new Bible. I got more sermons I got to preach out there. And that blessed my heart. That encouraged my heart. He's not preaching rerun sermon. No, man, he's starting from scratch. There's a freshness about him. Now, he'd be the first to say, John, don't make me sound like something I'm not. I, he's not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. No one is perfect. The question not, is not, are you perfect? The question is, do you know that you're saved? And do you have a freshness in you? The freshness of Jesus. His mercies are new every morning. And if we'll pursue him, and if we'll fulfill our purpose in life, we won't have to worry about being called a dead church. 
we will be alive and vivacious and we will be the people that God created us to be. Amen.